Hello, wherever you are in the world today, welcome to Beyond the Art in our series, The Stories That Carry Us. I'm your host, Craig Beaumont Flynn, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and the Delaware Tribe of Indians. In each episode, we will discuss with various Native American artists, influencers, art leaders, and everyone in between their experiences, the communities they serve, and the translation and interpretation of the Native American art world today. Welcome to Beyond the Art. Today we have Chef Sean Sherman, Ogala Lakota, Ogala Lakota Sioux. Sorry about that. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, Sean, tell us a little bit about you and being a Native American chef. So I live in Minneapolis. Um, I have my restaurant called Awamni, a company called The Sioux Chef, spelled S-I-O-U-X, play on words. Um, we also run a pretty large nonprofit that's doing a lot of work, but, um, I grew up on Pine Ridge, uh, reservation in South mm. Dakota. So I'm an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux tribe. And, um, I moved to Minneapolis quite a few years back in the late nineties. And, uh, so my journey basically came about, um, just, uh, starting restaurant work very early in life. Um, when I just turned 13, I started working in restaurants in South Dakota and I kind of just, uh, Continued to work restaurants through high school, college, moved to Minneapolis, uh, continued restaurants and moved my way up into a chef career at a pretty young age. So I was a pretty young chef in the city. Right. And then a few years into that chef career, I had the epiphany of just realizing the complete absence of my own heritage in the culinary world. Um, just no native restaurants, no native cookbooks, no mention mm-hmm. of native foods, really hardly at all anywhere. Um, and it just uh, it forced me to really take a hard look at that, you know, and try to understand, like, what was my ancestry when it came to culinary? You know, what were my um, ancestors eating? What were they preserving? How were they cooking things? What kind mm-hmm. of, uh, how, what were they using for salts and fats and sugars and things like that? The kinds of proteins and right. what kind of seeds were out there and all these questions of food through kind of a culinary lens. And then uh, starting to That's a rather large epiphany. <laughs> yeah, I was just piecing it all together. And just trying to understand all those pieces and understand it. But it also became a quest to understand why we lost so much information. So it ended up being a big journey into understanding U.S. history and what happens mm-hmm. to us as indigenous peoples and defining why, why we utilize terms like decolonize and pieces like that. Um, so there's a lot of pieces to it, but it's right. uh, it's been a really rewarding journey. And uh, um, there's so much to learn and more to learn than I can uh, than I'll be able to even get <laughs> to the other end through my lifetime. A lot of research, I'm sure, has been applied to finding out. Now, have you actually taken a traditional seeds and, and traditional indicative plants that Native American uh, used during pre-colonization? Absolutely. So a big part of that study, when it came to understanding seeds, I started aligning myself with indigenous seed keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I found, uh, you know, quite a few different people from different parts of the nation that still held a lot of indigenous seeds. Um, I, I sit on a board with a large nonprofit called Seed Savers Exchange out of Decorah, Iowa. And, uh, you know, they've also helped me align with a lot of other indigenous seed keepers in different parts of the nation. Um, and just kind of being aware of the seeds that are out there and helping to find ways to get those seeds to indigenous growers and mm-hmm. to indigenous communities where some of them came from. Um, so, yeah, that's a big part of the work that we do. Um, you know, our philosophy, especially at our restaurant stuff, is first off, our 
philosophy was removing colonial ingredients. So we took away things like dairy, wheat flour, cane sugar, beef, pork, chicken, just things that had been introduced to North America. And then we started focusing on just regional and understanding like what was here first. And so we tried to purchase from indigenous producers first around us um, locally and then nationally. So we were able to get a lot of really amazing products from many different tribes all over the U.S. Have you seen a resurgence in a lot of uh, organizations or companies coming on board that are actually very indicative to Native American culture and our, our culinary arts before colonization? Absolutely. Um, you know, we started this and I started the company in 2014 and there was just a couple other chefs kind of doing some of the similar work out there mm-hmm. at the time and, uh, you know, just kept pushing forward. But we built a really strong base and um, there's a lot of interest and we've just seen this movement just grow and grow and grow over the past almost decade now. Um, and there's a lot of uh, money and support going into indigenous agricultural um projects out there across the board. We're seeing a lot more food sovereignty um, situations and our entire nonprofits just set up to help other people do basically the same and just try to become a support system to see more indigenous food operations and um, just a better understanding of indigenous foods and just more access to indigenous mm-hmm. foods. Because where I grew up on Pine Ridge, like I grew up primarily with government subsidies in the form of the Commodity Food Program and the FDPIR right. program from the USDA, um, which is just a lot of canned goods and vegetables and sodiums and fruits right. and syrups and lots of carbs, you know, and it's not healthy. And so um, we've been working really hard to try to figure out ways to get indigenous foods directly into communities, you know, so there's a lot of work to do and it's working. Like we have a beautiful model set up in Minneapolis and we're getting ready to create that as an expansion and extension. So we're moving already towards Bozeman, Montana to be a regional center point there. And we're going to continuously grow in other regions like Anchorage, Alaska, Rapid City, South Dakota, Oahu and Hawaii and wow. uh, many other places beyond that. You're, you're spreading out. <laughs> yeah. We're just helping. We're just trying to let ourselves be that support center, but we can help create a lot of these facilities out there and uh, see a lot more movement of indigenous foods, a lot more demand around indigenous foods. Cause with just two kitchens here in Minneapolis, you know, we're pushing tens of thousands of dollars into more indigenous food production. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's a, we're creating a demand that wasn't necessarily there before. Now is your restaurant serving indicative food of just the Sioux tribe? Or are you kind of uh, spreading it out and looking at uh, various other uh, tribal Partially, um, the food will represent this particular land space. So a lot of the food comes from the Dakota tribes that were here first, and then also the Anishinaabe tribes that have uh, that are home here also um, mm-hmm. in northern Minnesota. Um, we also are close by Ho Chunk, and we're also close by you know some of the other like the Lakota tribes, like where I'm from, um, nearby us in the Dakotas. And you know, there's lots of tribes around us. Um, there's the three affiliated, which are Mandan, Hidatsa, Rikara. There's Ponca, not too far away. Um, so we try to purchase a lot what we can from surrounding areas but uh, but we do buy food from all over the place we have corns coming in from Potawatomi nation in michigan mm-hmm. we've had corns from uh, some of the iroquois nations out east we've had um, products coming in from pima and from navajo Diné tribes in the southwest um, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there you know and we've connected ourselves with tribes all over the u.s you know because there's still 576 tribes that are exactly. federally recognized in the u.s and many more that don't have that status 622 in Canada and like 20% of Mexico identifies as indigenous. So there's so much indigeneity out there. Now, when you started to do your research, are there any plants that uh, are extinct? 
you know, we used to use? To know, it's hard to know for sure. There's definitely um, mass disruption that happens in North America during the mm-hmm. 1800s throughout the colonial push because forests are being ripped out. Um, the introduction of species like cattle and pigs and chickens are coming in full force and right. um, disrupting environments. The the invention of barbed wire fences um, has a big role in just disruption, disrupting uh, natural paths of wild game and animals to help spread seeds and move, and be, you know, just the symbiotic way the environment works with animals and plants like was just really disrupted during that mm-hmm. time period and all the mines that pop up and all these things you know so we it's hard to know exactly what was lost we know that many um agricultural tribes were completely wiped out and moved away and we have no idea what kind of seed stock and heritage seeds are just gone from the face of the earth forever right. because of that and it's hard to know what kind of um, plant life is just you know, completely wiped out too. And obviously there's been animals that have disappeared and some of them just barely hung on. Like bison is a really good story of mm-hmm. understanding how it was almost completely wiped out by intention of this Complete government. Decim- and then, you know, now it's in the resurgence. So starting to be normal to see bison product on menus all over the place. True, true. So when you had your epiphany and you started looking at the various types of uh, foods to incorporate and be very indicative to our past culture and bringing it back to life, so to speak. Were you surprised? Did it kind of change your mindset of looking at culinary arts as a general? Yeah, it definitely changed things. Um, Cause when I have the epiphany, I just, uh, I didn't understand why I didn't know much about my own heritage food and, you know, and why there was very little material out there on the subject and you no, know, just complete invisibility, like no representation. So mm-hmm. um, there was a lot to learn. And when I first started to attempt to try and put together, you know, what my philosophy around recipes might be, I'm trying to showcase um, plates that could be identified as indigenous foods. Like, you know, many times I was trying to utilize a lot of like European ratios and cooking and stuff like that. And eventually I just learned to kind of allow the plant the food and the plants just to be really simplistic and let them be what they are and allow the flavors to really come through. And, uh, it's been, you know, it's been a good journey, but we've been doing it for years now and we've had a lot of success in different areas, but, um, we've created, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of recipes uh, on this over the past few years alone, because we're not attempting to cook like the past and trying to be stuck in 1491, you know, (laughs) really just trying to understand as much as we can from our ancestry um, to understand a lot more plant diversity in the diet, a lot more protein diversity, different styles of cooking techniques and using a mix of some traditional recipes, but really kind of building things for the future of what's possible to move forward to really think about connecting with our land spaces better to really adopt a lot of indigenous knowledge around how food systems work and how we could really tend to the land a lot more closely and have a deeper respect and relationship with the plant world Mm -hmm. around us to help protect it and take care of it and just to help it be productive. Um, So we have a lot more food around us that we could be utilizing. When you started this, have you uh, been contacted by other youth maybe that are interested in the culinary arts and especially Native American foods? Absolutely. So we bring in quite a few interns every year. Mm-hmm. Um, the restaurant's only been open for a couple of years now officially, but we've been you know, running this business for quite a few years now, nearly a decade now. So we've had a lot of people come through and um, some, of our, some of our past uh, employees have even started their own businesses in this work. Um, so it's exciting to see this, this growth and the spark just really right. kind of shaking off, you know. So tell us a little bit about your nonprofit. 
The nonprofit is called Natives. It's acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And under Natives, we have a public entity called Indigenous Food Lab, which was created as a place to try to just do a lot more research and development and understand more about Indigenous foods and record it. Um, and then eventually we created a model so public would have access to it. So we just launched a Native American market space in South Minneapolis where people can come and find a, a space with all sorts of indigenous food products uh, to purchase um, retail. And uh, we have a small lunch counter there so people can order some lunch. And we also have a classroom studio. So we're going to be teaching about all sorts of facets of indigenous uh, focused education. Fantastic. So we look at indigenous uh, education as just uh, what we should have been learning and downloading from our ancestors, you know, the thousands of generations of knowledge of seed saving and farming techniques and wild mm -hmm. foods and whole animal butchery and mycology and, you know, star knowledge and crafting and medicines. And there's so many pieces to all of it. So we're just going to be pumping out tons of videos on all sorts of facets of topics, you know, whether it's seed saving or medicines or cooking or mm -hmm. food preservation or whatever it might be, language. Um, and just recording that and putting that all online so people can have access to watching a lot of educational snippets on indigenous focused pieces and just putting that education out there in the world so people have access to it and next generations have access to it so we don't lose that. Interviewing lots of elders, um, allowing elders to come in and teach about things that they know. And we just have a lot of big plans for the space. And we also have USDA licensing to be a micro to mid-sized co-packer to help people wow. get more food products on the market space. Mm -hmm. And eventually we'll release those market spaces to go online and eventually we'll also work on wholesale to as we work with tribal communities around us and help them to develop food operations we can be a spot where they can order a lot of these foods from directly from and we're also creating those extensions like i mentioned so we're already working on one in montana right now to be another regional center point to help out all the tribal communities in that region to help record a lot of the indigenous knowledge through video and to just spread dis distribution around and to trade a lot of knowledge and products um, back and forth between the two entities. And eventually we'll just keep going outwards, you know. So mm -hmm. we, our plan is just to replicate ourselves everywhere and eventually crossing colonial borders. So we could be up in Canada, down in Mexico. We can cross, go further. We could be South America, Africa, India, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand, Hawaii, wherever wherever, wherever we need to be um, to help steward uh, indigenous knowledge and food systems for future generations. That's amazing work. So where most of these... Most of this can be found online. You have a, a website that people can yeah. uh, go to. Natifs.org, natives.org um, is the nonprofit website. And then awamni.com, where people want to just look at the restaurant, or Sue Chef, and it's Sue Chef, and it's spelled S I O U X Chef.com. Or people can just look me up. I just have a personal website, shantram.com. <laughs> it's an easy one to get to all the points. So, uh, Chef Sean, tell us a little bit about your restaurant and what you do at the restaurant. So we launched the restaurant in 2021. It's called Awamni, which was named after the land space that we sit on because we're downtown Minneapolis, right mm -hmm. on the Mississippi River. And we're in front of what used to be a really beautiful waterfall that was about 300 feet across and about 40 feet down. And it was a massive um, really beautiful space um, but it was ruined when the colonial machine moved in and all the mills popped up and all the lumber barons were around and um, they were just shoving logs and, and timber down the river and it slowly deteriorated the waterfall space until some of it even collapsed mm -hmm. um, so today it's just a concrete skirting and a lock and dam but um, the Dakota people that lived here um, called the rest the, the called the waterfall Awamni Yamni which meant place of the falling swirling water 
And it was a really important site because there was a Dakota village on this space that kind of overlooked the river and it was a place for trade and, and, and crossing the river and uh, all these pieces because rivers were basically highways back in those right. days for people to move around. And um, so it's a really special and unique space. And we opened in 21 and we basically have been sold out ever since we opened. We won the James Beard Award last year for best new restaurant in the US, which is a huge award. And uh, we've had many accolades for the restaurant. We were amongst tons of top 10 lists and top of lists when we came out. Um, And it's just something unique because again, we took away um, dairy products and wheat flour and cane sugar and beef pork and chicken. So you're not going to find things like ketchup or ranch dressing, (laughs) chicken fingers on the menu, you know, so it's really unique, you know, but it really represents the true flavors of where we are here. Um, it pushes a lot of purchases from indigenous food producers and highlights a lot of these uh, ingredients that are out there, whether it's wild rice or corns or beans or squash or sunflowers or chilies all sorts of game and so it's a really fun menu to play with and it's just been again super popular now is the menu standard or you do you change it seasonally based on we've been changing it pretty seasonally we've been changing it with the uh, especially with the solstices and the equinoxes and uh, when it, when everything kind of shifts um, so we've been changing it um, at least four times a year um, so we've only been open a couple of years so we're still kind of you know challenging ourselves and creating new ways and things like that. But, uh, no, it's been a lot of fun. We're working on a new menu change right now to come up with the, with the harvest season, moving into the winter season. Mm -hmm. At what has been the overall response from the non-native community? Has it been a, a slow growth or was, was it just like, boom, people are interested in because of the, the type of food it is and what it's offering to the community? Yeah, I mean, it's been popular on all demographics and people are literally flying into Minneapolis just to come to the restaurant. And wow, so it's, that's been, you know, it's been a it's been a draw, you know, so it's making its own name for itself. Um, and it's good, you know, because we have about 120 employees right here right now because it's busy. It's a big restaurant in the summertime. Um, it's cozy inside, but we have a lot of outdoor space. So it fills up pretty fast and it's just a really beautiful area. Now, when you started to do your research, were you collecting all these recipes and potentially are you going to do a cookbook? Um, I started the cookbook pretty much right off the bat because like yeah. I said, I, form, I formed the company officially in 2014, which had taken a few years to get to that point. And then um, in late 2014, I started working on a cookbook concept. And by 2015, I had signed up with the University of Minnesota Press and my co-author on that first book, Beth Dooley, and we started working on that. And we had that book live by the end of 2017. Um, and that book also won a James Beard Award for Best American Cookbook in 2018 when it was Great. out. Um, and it's been a very popular book because it was unlike anything else out there. Right. And um, there's a, another second book in the works right now through Clarkson Potter, and it's another really big uh project that looks at all of North America from Mexico through Alaska and looking at all the amazing diversity of indigeneity out there through a cookbook um, format. So how much time do you uh, spend in the kitchen uh, testing and experimenting and playing around and see what really goes and you know, it, it depends. So like, I like to make sure I have some time in the kitchen and, you know, I, I meet with the chefs a lot and just talk things through, but, you know, I'm the executive director at the nonprofit and, mm-hmm. and, you know, just overseeing the restaurant and all the pieces. So there's a, a lot of people to, to manage, a lot of projects to manage. And, but I enjoy giving myself space to still be able to cook. And I like to, you know, have my creative space at home too, where right. I can just play around. And so uh, cooking will always be a huge part of what I do. 
not to excuse the pun, you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> it's very true. And it's been a big year, you know, because I was in the time 100 for most 100 influential people in the world this year. And then um, the Julia Child Award is being presented to me this October here in Minneapolis, too, which is another pretty uh, largely prestigious award. So exactly. it's really exciting to have those accolades. But really, the work isn't about myself. It's just about utilizing this platform to talk about a lot of the issues that are still out there around indigenous communities, indigenous foods, and addressing a lot of the health needs and nutrition needs out there and reservations. Cause, Huge factor. Yeah. Because, you, know, you know, Pine Ridge, when I grew up, we had zero restaurants on the reservation. We had one grocery store to service an area the size of Connecticut. And we, you know, just had very little food access and we, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're still, our education systems were still very assimilated and uh, just a lot of misinformation about ourselves, even in the education that we were getting. So there's so much work to do, you know, and, uh, right. but we're, we're seeing a really good progress and we're seeing a really strong path of things that are possible and we're just moving forward. What were some of the challenges that came about during this initial journey of yours? Oh, lots of challenges. I mean, you know, coming from a reservation system, uh, a lot of us on the res don't have a lot of uh, family wealth or, or things like right. that. So it's really difficult to even think about opening up businesses and just not growing up with money. It took me a long time to understand how to deal with money, you know. So even when I first started the sous chef, like I was still learning, like I had awful credit and just no credit really. But right. and just uh, it took some time to learn those processes, you know. Um, and but it's also just something that was invisible because a lot of people just didn't understand in the very beginning days what I was attempting to do of just trying to release in indigenous foods out there, you mm -hmm. know. And it, it wasn't, it's not a fad, it's something that just needs to be out here, you know. We should, it shouldn't be so uncommon to find a Native American restaurant at all, like, True. We, I mean, we have massive cities and, you know, good luck finding something that represents the land you're standing on, though, in that city, you know, with food from all over the world, but just nothing that happens to be from where that is. Exactly. So there's a lot of there's a lot of work out there that could be done. And I think what we're doing here is showcasing a need, showcasing a demand, showcasing uh, what's possible um, for modern indigenous foods and mm -hmm. showcasing that this could be popular and uh you know, just great no matter where we put it. So our vision is to help see indigenous food operations happen all over the place. And we can just imagine one day when we can travel across the country and experience all this amazing diversity out there. Have uh, many tribal communities come to you to say, help us educate our community on Absolutely. the best way to eat and are actually indicative food of who we are as a people. Absolutely. Instead of, instead of going to McDonald's or wherever else. Yeah, we're working with lots of tribes right now, and uh, we're just setting ourselves up to be that. And we're working with some tribal school systems. We're working with a Red Cloud school system on Pine Ridge, South Dakota, where I grew up, and which used to be the first boarding school there where my grandparents went when I was young, or when they were young, sorry. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and you know, we're working with a lot of higher ed and uh, a lot of universities and colleges out there also, and just a lot of tribes particularly. And again, like we're just setting ourselves up to be a resource and a support center so we can help other people do the same thing because food service operations are difficult um, and uh, but necessary, obviously. Right. And we just help steer people to eating healthier and eating more culturally relevant, especially in the tribal communities. Do you feel you take risk? 
Um, possibly. I mean, I feel like I'm pretty outspoken about a lot of the issues out there. I'm pretty right. outspoken about a lot of the atrocities in American history that happened from the U.S. government towards indigenous peoples. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, we're living in a really strange time where it's important to be outspoken, you know, because... True. Um, you know, this restaurant's possibly illegal in Florida right now. You never right. know. <laughs> um, so we have a lot of work to do. And, you know, we just don't want to see um, our education be further whitewashed when it's already been whitewashed. Mm -hmm. And we want to see a lot of better understanding of what happened. And we think history is really important for people to understand, um, you know, a lot of the violence and atrocities that um, certain people of color had to go through in American history, but especially black and indigenous and how that affected everything. But also looking at the beauty of understanding the indigenous knowledge bases that are, that are out there, because all indigenous peoples had the blueprint to live sustainably with the world around us, um, mm -hmm. particularly, you know, and there's so much amazing tradition around food systems. And, you know, as we're walking into climate change and water shortages crises that we need to be smarter as humans like we need right. to take care of our land spaces our natural or water resources better we you know like you know otherwise we have places like palm springs that has 120 golf courses in the middle right. of a drought right it's about understanding your your surroundings but the balance of life too Absolutely, because we're, we're going to continue to grow as human species. We're going to need more food. We're going to, and we can't continue to just like destroy things, you know, for the sake of profits. Like we have right. to really protect our environment, understand better food diversity, because there's so much plant life around us that's just been underutilized because the Western diet just kind of largely ignored like a lot of the amazing like plant life that happens to live all around us, no matter where we are in North America. Right. And you can't grow water. Can't grow water. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be an issue. I mean, then we're going to be we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it. You know, so we have X amount of fresh water, and it's been it's going to be a rough go. You know, and we yeah. just have to be way way smarter about water. You know, and we can't allow big companies just to make plastic bottles. You know, to, for the sake of profit, sure. like yeah. we have to be much smarter about growing foods and and taking care of agricultural spaces and taking care of natural spaces. And ideally we'd see more permaculture design out there and just putting food plants that like to grow and that can be better for the soil and can just create a lot of food product out there. Mm -hmm. And rejuvenation. Yep. Um, you, have you been approached to expand your restaurant in other areas? We have, but we're going to be very careful about that because uh, for me, it's not about just creating a, like a, you know, a, a brand that we can just throw out all over the place. Um, but we do see the need for indigenous land, uh, restaurants and spaces out there because they do bring a lot of understanding. It does give people a chance to really think differently about the foods, especially of the mm -hmm. land that they're standing on and see a better representation of the cultures in the various areas. So our hopes is to do a lot of this work and expansion through the nonprofit, like I mentioned. mentioned so if we're opening up these units in places all over the United States, like in Montana or Anchorage or wherever, like we can open up native restaurants um, for people to help develop. But those restaurants would be there for the purpose of helping to create some cash flow for a lot of the programs and, uh, you know, just pieces that we're working on through the nonprofit. So we kind of have a plan of how to do this and kind of mm -hmm. and have a lot of social impact um, along the way. And it's also education, I assume. Is it yep, a key education. factor? 
Yeah, our, our, the nonprofit, our two main pillars and focuses is just creating access to indigenous foods and creating access to indigenous education. And restaurants are great spaces for that. But so, you know, we're hoping to spend, spread these market spaces all over the place and spread more of these classrooms out there and spread more of these public eateries, whether it's a full scale restaurant or just a small scale catering operation. So whatever it, whatever it might be and whatever the need is. All right. What are you most proud of for now? I'm sure that your journey is definitely going to continue and you're going to have a lot of uh, additional accolades uh, because of the work that you're doing. But what are you most proud of now? I'm really proud of the team that we've built. Like, I just feel like we have so many people that are just really into the vision that we have and really helping to see this mission through. And obviously this is not a one man show by any means, you know, and we need, and we're creating a lot of leaders along the way. And I'm just really excited to see the growth that we're going through and the growth that's coming up. Um, So I just feel, I feel really good about where we are right now as things are actually manifesting after quite a few years of just dreaming things up and trying to find ways to do it but actually seeing these things come to life and seeing them working in real time and seeing the the huge group of employees that we have and uh, how everybody's just really working together, you know. So right. the restaurant's just been such a machine with the whole staff that's been running it and enabling me to not have to be in the kitchen every single day, but to <laughs> still be around. And um, the nonprofit, like, we're just growing and growing, you know. So we probably have, like I said, 120-ish employees at the restaurant and, you know, we're probably nearing about 50 employees at the nonprofit and, you know, we're just growing really quickly and we see a lot of lot more growth in front of us, as, especially as we spread into other regions. Is there a particular recipe or food that you're most surprised at that you discovered during this journey? Like, how could we have lost this? Why did it stop? Like, I wow, this is so good. <laughs> yeah, I think there's so many out there because there's so many heirloom seeds out there from different uh-huh. native tribes that are so interesting from all over the place. And you see more and more as even like the further south you go, like into Mexico, there's just so many different varietals of these corns and beans and squashes and chilies. And there's so many wild foods. And like I said, there's too much to learn out there. Right. Like I'll never get to the end of it because every region is special and unique. You know, you can just throw a, a dart at a map of North America and wherever it lands, like it's going to be interesting to discover what the foods of that particular region are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'm really um, just been having a great time working on this next book. Like I said, that covers all of North America. So like researching what's the indigenous foods of the Yukon or the indigenous foods of the East Coast or the indigenous foods of Southern Mexico compared to Northern Mexico or North Alaska to South Alaska, you know, and just like all the varietals and diversities and differences out there. And there's just so much to explore with domesticated foods, wild foods, um, animals, proteins, birds, fish, shellfish, insects, whatever it might be. You know, there's so much out there. Do you have a personal uh, palate favorite? Um, it's a tough one because we eat a lot of wild foods. We eat very seasonally. I travel a lot, so I get to be in other regions and there's just amazing foods out there. And I just really love finding things that are in season in the particular places, you know, whether like you're gathering pawpaws in the East coast or you're getting choke cherries from the plains or you're gathering, uh, pinions from the Southwest or Mm -hmm. cactus fruit or whatever it might be. Like there's just so much amazing food everywhere that just represents those particular areas. And it's really fun to be in the indigenous communities and learn from the indigenous elders and the communities who are still utilizing a lot of the foods that are very unique to them, wherever they might be like eating raw whale up in Alaska or eating, you know, clams on the East coast or wherever it might be like i feel like everywhere is exciting true true i know the cherokee nation uh, annually has an heirloom seed uh, 
distribution. Um, yep. I, I, I must not have a green thumb because mine, do, <laughs> mine never sprout. So oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> have you come across any problematics like seeds that people have given you that have been stored away from families and just uh, been well, part of like a, a couple of a few years ago before pandemic at Seed Savers Exchange, um, there was an indigenous seed keeper who was chair of the board. Her name was Rowan and Rowan went through and uh, worked with the Seed Savers group. And they, they, I think they, they pulled out about 125 seeds um, that were in the vaults at Seed Savers that haven't been um, grown out for a long time in those indigenous communities, but directly came from indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. So they started a program where they were growing out 25 of those seeds each year for, for seed basically. And uh, after they harvested the seeds, they would take those seeds um, across the nation in the winter time um, to deliver them to those tribes that, um, that haven't had those seeds. So they were rematriating these seeds that had been kind of lost for a while. And I've seen another project like that in Mexico where they found mm -hmm. a huge uh, corn vault with all sorts of diversity. And they started moving these seeds back to these exact families and townships that they came from and gifting those seeds back to those communities. So I've seen a lot of that work kind of bubbling up over the past few years. And uh, the pandemic obviously slowed some of that down here and there. But there's still a lot of amazing biodiversity that's out there. To, and there's just a there's a, an immense need to understand why we need to be stewarding those seed diversities and really protecting the rights of the indigenous peoples to keep those seeds because a lot of these big corporations and big seed companies and you know chemical companies are trying to buy up a lot of that diversity and trademark them for their own use you know mm -hmm. which is a really dangerous move and we just have to be really careful that we have to protect that seed diversity with whatever we can um, and that's a and this also falls in line with just protecting the diversity of the indigenous cultures that are out there when it comes down to it did you had to reteach yourself when you went started going through this journey it's like okay well i can't be a westernized chef i have to be a native american chef because yeah, of it's, it's always just kind of challenging ourselves to be a, a little bit more indigenous with things and again we're not trying to go backwards in time so it's not like i'm getting rid of my food processor right. or, something. <laughs> or going outside yeah <laughs> yeah I mean, we love cooking over fire of course um, <laughs> doing lots of things natural but it's also when we're running a full-scale professional restaurant we have a lot of health codes and things we have to deal with and a lot mm -hmm. of specific equipment we have to utilize um, so it's really just about the philosophy you know but again like with recipes i had to like break that mindset because so much of the culinary culture was so deeply delved into french technique you know and i had to break break my brain away from that early on to be able to really start to see the food differently and start to create recipes that didn't have to follow those rule sets and mm -hmm. to you know, learn learn it from a different perspective so what's next for you i mean again sorry for the pun but you have a lot on your plate um what's next for you well, um, hopefully we're just going to start seeing these expansions ha happen. We're going to uh -huh. see more indigenous food products available to people, especially online. Um, we're going to, uh, um, you know, I'm hoping to, to move a lot of the storytelling um, into more video spaces. So whether that's in the form of a TV series or a documentary, um, I'm really working towards trying to get this 
get these stories out there more. You know, there's so much more to learn. And, uh, you know, a lot of America could utilize a different perspective of where we happen to live and the history of where, where we are. Um, and I just think it's going to be really important um, a storytelling tool to utilize as we move forward. So I feel like there's a really bright future in front of us. And I'm hoping to see more restaurants built out of this in the future um, and just a lot more understanding of indigenous communities, no matter which part of the states you happen to live in. True, true. I mean, we have to tell our story. You can't have someone else tell it. And I think that's an important factor that someone of uh, Native American culture and background and indigenous to the land itself is an important element that's missing. And obviously, you're the key to that. (laughs) Creating that uh, path for a relationship to the world around us. Absolutely. Um, What was some of the trial and tribulations of opening a restaurant? I mean, I know... That is not an easy task to do. Well, we had the global pandemic. Which yeah. Was a <laughs> <laughs> little, little hurdle, little bump in the road. Yeah. And, you know, finding funding in the middle of a global pandemic wasn't fun either when all the banks were basically just throwing the door shut on us right. and just saying that uh, we'll, we'll think about um, funding restaurants when the country is 70% vaccinated, which mm. we know will probably never happen anyways, you know. So um, it, those were tough times, you know, and we had um, we had big plans. We had moved our nonprofit into a big space in early 2020, only to be right in front of that pandemic and having to pull back and wait for a moment. But also where we landed, um, we, uh, we basically were in the middle of the George Floyd uh, murder, too, which happened just eight blocks south of us. And the street we're on is the street where the public uprising happened and all the buildings around us were just literally burned to the ground during that time period. And so, so much, so much energy coming out of that time period in the middle of that pandemic and then birthing a restaurant in the middle of all that, you know, it it was a really intense time. And we had turned to a lot of food relief during the pandemic. So we were... Uh, we started out sending about 400 meals a day, all, all healthy indigenous meals to our local community during the pandemic, which turned into about 10,000 meals a week um, with a staff of about 12 people. And uh, it was a really intense time. Um, so lots of lots of hurdles during that time period, but we got our doors open. Um, and there were very few restaurants opening at that time period, especially in 21, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was definitely, definitely an interesting adventure. So... What do you do on your your downtime, Sean? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like to hang out with my partner, and I have a son. We all live in Minneapolis, and I do travel a lot. A lot of it's for work, but we do get to go to really amazing, beautiful places. Um, We do get to visit a lot of amazing chefs from other parts of the country and just kind of see what's going on out there. Um, I love just being at home when I can, though, and just cooking at home and growing the garden and doing the things, you know, so... Um, I, I taught myself how to paint during the pandemic, so I'm hoping to do that more as we continue to grow. So it's good to have lots of hobbies outside of the work sphere, obviously. Right, right. I bet. So during your research of uh, and this journey, was a little, were you surprised at some of the history that you found? Oh, yeah. Constantly. There's so much just craziness out there, you know, yeah. and I always encourage people to read books like uh, Indigenous People's History of the United States, which is by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Mm-hmm. And it just lays out a completely different version of what is American history, you know. 
And um, when you're looking at American history through that indigenous perspective, it's it's rather insane. Um, so there's just so much um, to learn constantly out there. And, you know, hi- history has been so hidden from us in our education systems um, in the U.S. for very specific re- reasons. And again, like we're just kind of going in the wrong direction in many areas right now, too. Um, and so uh, there's just, again, so much work to do to keep raising awareness on a lot of these issues. True, true, very true. Hopefully uh, the time is now uh, that things start to change. I know a lot of generations before us have always said that, but I think now is an appropriate time with the ebb and flow of just recognition of uh, the atrocities that have happened. And uh, we're not going anywhere. (laughs) Absolutely. I think it's really important. And, you know, there's no time like now to do everything. So like we're just pushing forward with all of it, you know, and it's not worth to keep quiet, especially, you know, his history can be uncomfortable, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's history. So, but we have to understand it so we don't go backwards, you know, so there's just, it's, it's a crazy time out there. (laughs) A completely different direction. What do you cook at home? Um, you know, I actually eat plant-based a lot when I'm at home, just for health reasons. Um, uh-huh. But I enjoy cooking whatever. Like I have a big outdoor cooking area, so we'll cook a lot of stuff outside. Um, we have a we grill stuff right over a fire. Um, I have a smoker. I have a grill. I have all sorts of things to play with. You know, um, so we're always just you know just whatever whatever <laughs> whim we have, we're just making things. You know, so um, it's just fun to just whatever whim. And right now it's just garden season. So I've just been eating obviously lots of tomatoes and peppers and mm-hmm. herbs and all the fresh greens. And, you know, it's just fun to eat, eat like Absolutely. that too. That's good. That's good. What does your son think? He doesn't complain about no? food too much, you know, <laughs> but you know, he's a 20 year old. So there's a very specific outlook on life at the moment. Sure. So we're all going, <laughs> we all go through that, that phase, you know, do you get to get ahead home much? Do you go back to Pine Ridge often? I was just in the Black Hills a couple of weekends ago, and that was really nice to be around a lot of family and mm-hmm. just to be out there. I just miss the I miss that region because um, the Pine Ridge Reservation is in western South Southern and Western South Dakota, right. and uh, you know it's just grasslands and plains, but also spending times in the Black Hills, which is a really special place, especially for Lakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just miss the smells out there and just the hot summers that you, that are so dry heat, just sit True. under a tree even the hottest days and it still feels nice, you know. Um, so it's just, it's nice. I love, I love being back out that way. I'm sure they're definitely exceptionally proud of you. What do they think of your journey and what you're doing? Oh, the family's very proud, of course. You know, there's been obviously lots of accolades, um, but again, like they also see the importance of the work that's going forward. So my family's been extremely supportive of all of this and I feel very grateful for that. That's fantastic. Is there anything you want to add and share with us, Sean? Um, Off the top of my head, uh, I can't really think of anything. (laughs) We went over quite a bit there, so... Um, but I encourage people to come visit the restaurant if they pass Absolutely. through Minneapolis um, or visit the food lab um, where you can find some cool products or get a light lunch, you know, and just be on a lookout for a lot of the education that we'll be pumping out um, starting this year. Um, and there's just a, a lot of fun stuff going on out there. So once, uh, once again, why don't you give us the name of your restaurant and uh, the address to the nonprofit natives? Yeah. So the restaurant's just called Owamni, O-W-A-M-N-I. There you go. 
and uh, buy the sous chef. So you can go to awamni.com, um, but you can also uh, check out the, the nonprofit. So natives is the website, natifs.org. Um, so we're still building a lot of the online resources um, out there, but uh, it's moving pretty fast. So we're really excited about um, everything that we have coming down for the nonprofit. And people want to support our work there, feel free to, to jump online and check out that, that website. Um, but it's going to, we're just doing a lot of amazing work and we're, mm -hmm. um, again, like we are just doing something that is going to have a lot of impact on the health and uh, food connection to people out there and understanding. So, so the nonprofit is, it's a local entity, but does it have a, a national outreach? Absolutely. Yeah. Because our goal is to create this model here and this will mm -hmm. be the heart of everything we do, but we're going to be spreading outwards all over the place. And that was always the model to start stamping out more and more of these units everywhere, you know, so we just really wanted to see a lot more support happen, a lot more uh, stewardship of indigenous knowledge and culture through foods. And uh, um, we just see a very clear path of how we're moving forward. So we're hoping that we can be in Montana as early as next year, even. Fantastic. Well, Chef Sean, it's been a true pleasure. You're an inspirational man, uh, and congratulations on all your accolades. They're so well-deserved, and I appreciate your time today and coming in on our show. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.